Well, friends, again, as has been mentioned a couple of times, we welcome you to First Christian Church this morning. For those who are guests, my name is Wayne. It is my privilege to be part of the staff here, and we look forward to spending some time in Scripture with you today. Before we get to that, though, I just would like to remind those of you who are here on a regular basis that we have an event this afternoon that you might want to take note of. Pam Jones has been part of our staff for more than 10 years now and has provided a valuable, valuable service to our congregation. When we speak to people who are visiting the church or even long-term members, we say, what, what, you know, we do surveys from time to time. What are some of the growth engines? What are the flywheels of our congregation that cause people to show up here and ways that we can impact the lives of homes all across the community? Without a doubt, uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt, uh, Pam's name and her work in Discovery Zone comes up every time. Our family ministries approach. And uh, she takes care, along with a whole large team, of all the children in the life of our church that are under the age of kindergarten, before they go to kindergarten, and uh, has been valuable, invaluable to us over the last 10 years. But she and Dawn have decided it's time to pack it in. And uh, yesterday we were in the office, and I put my arms around her just before the worship service uh, yesterday afternoon, and I said, now, Pam, are you sure about this? And she said, don't say it too long because I might be convinced otherwise, but I under- I, it's good for her and for Dawn. And so this afternoon from three to five, you're invited to come here to this building and to uh, ex- express your appreciation to her. We'll have a small ceremony, if you will, a small prayer time with, with Dawn and Pam at four o'clock. So if you'd like to be part of that, you might make note of that. All right. Look forward to seeing you this afternoon. In the meanwhile, I'd like to, to invite you to take your Bible, please. You'll, um, we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have one with you, you'll notice there's the one in the pew rack in front of you. And um, Ephesians is about, oh, three quarters of the way through the Bible. It's, it's halfway through the, the uh, New Testament. And while you're looking for Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to tell you about a story that I came across this week that um, is fascinating and has a lot to do with Ephesians 2. When you first hear the story, you're going to go, How? Well, you'll figure it out by the time we're done. I'll see if I can pull it all together. I want to um, introduce to you um, the story of a woman by the name of Stella Rice. Uh, Stella lost her mother a number of years ago. And and in response to that, her family said, you should probably have a pet at the house and have somebody to keep you company, if you will, and, and to kind of take the place. So she looked around and she decided that uh, she wanted to get a Vietnamese pot-bellied pig. You've heard about those little things, I'm, I expect. They're supposed to be docile and delightful, intelligent. And so um, she and her husband, Rice and her husband, and her father and her kids went to this fellow who sold pot-bellied pigs. And she said, how big is it going to be? And he said, probably about 40 pounds. And with that, they forked over 950 big smackers and said, we'll take it. And they got themselves a little 15-pound male piglet. For the first year, he lived the country life. Absolutely everything that they had hoped he would be for a year. He nestled in soft blankets. He was fed scrumptious treats. Um, Her husband actually installed not a doggy door, but a piggy door in the back door so that the pig could go outside and romp around in the, uh, in the yard. And even the pig had access, because pigs like water, to the family swimming pool. And everything was supposed to be just grand. But the good life 
turned Ziffel, that was his name, the good life turned Ziffel into a spoiled brat. Eventually he would go outside only if you bribed him with Doritos or Teddy Grahams. And if it was raining, well, he wasn't going to go outside anyways. And if you couldn't get him outside, then you knew what you, know what you had, what mess there was in the house, okay? So if it was raining, eventually they figured out they could get him to go outside if Mrs. Rice went out with him with an umbrella over his delicate skin. Somehow or other, he got an aversion to water. He would, he just, I mean, pigs usually like to wall around in mud because they don't sweat. And the, this pig just didn't get to it. And he, um, he grew far more than 40 pounds. By the age two, he weighed 200 pounds. He'd sprouted two-inch tusks out of his nose, and um, he was beginning to charge at guests and Stella's husband. (laughs) So you can imagine what this is like for this family in this house. As a matter of fact, as as I was out on the web looking at all this, I came across a most adorable photograph. Look at this next photograph of a pot belly piglet. What cracks me up are the looks of the cats, though. (laughs) Don't you love it? Okay, so the cat down below in the bottom of the picture is going, "Mm, a few more weeks of buttering up and we're having real bacon. All right? And the cat above is going, no, you're not. He's all mine. He's all mine. He's all mine. I'm going to be taking him. So anyway... (laughs) Uh, Ziffel back at the Rice household presented some real problems. He um, dug up the yard. He destroyed the bathroom. He gnawed on the couch and the wicker furniture. He actually even uh, began to eat the drywall. He, um, he tore up the kitchen floor. Rice says he tore up the kitchen floor and ate it like fruit roll-ups. <laughs> and so basically as he matured from a piglet... Into adulthood, he went through, as you can imagine, adolescence. And like some teenagers, not all, he began to challenge his mother. And the uh, final straw was this, what happened one day. She said, one day, I was bending over in my robe, and he must have seen crosshairs on my rear end. He charged, and I flew through the air, my robe flying open. I wish I had it on video. He started to bite people. He started to attack my dad's shoes. I think they were made from pigskin. My aunt was afraid to go into the family room, and I began to wonder when he would turn on our sons. And let me ask you this. What would you do with that 200-pound pig in your house? I'm thinking 200 pounds of bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches myself. All right? Something like that. But... They figured, out, they figured out a way to, to solve the problem. And uh, the answer to it, believe it or not, is found in Ephesians chapter 2. And you go, it is? Yeah, it is. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to sh- tell you how it is that they've solved the Ziffel problem, problem according to what Scripture says, all right? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul the Apostle is writing and it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and you used to do this. You used to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we used to be something. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, in a nutshell, this is a description of people who claim to follow Jesus Christ. It's a before and after view. In other words, we lived one way and we were viewed one way, but now we live in a di- and are viewed in a different light. Verse 3 puts it most clearly when it says this, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, when you think about it, when you think about who we were, it would have been appropriate for God to singe us. I mean, we were just, I mean, if you've got sin in your life, you've got a problem because God doesn't stand for sin, so you've got a problem there. And I guess you could say there are differing degrees of how that verse might apply to all of us. For some of us in the room, we were always dirty, rotten scoundrels. We were always far from God, and it's like people could point us, and I'm not pointing at anyone. I notice I'm pointing over here. People would point us and say, that person over there, dirty, rotten scoundrel. That's at one end of the spectrum. But then there are others who are at the other end of the spectrum would say, well, that person over there, pretty kind, intelligent, good-natured, but that person over there knows that deep down within his or her heart, there's still some problems. And maybe, maybe most of us aren't on either end of the, of the extreme. We're somewhere in the middle. But for all of us, we know what's in our hearts. Just because we've had behavior modification and we don't express what's in our hearts, we know what's still there. But in, in either extreme and if with, with everything else between, Ephesians 2 tells us this, that God's mercy gave us grace in Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Now that's a lot of theological mumble jumble. God's mercy in, gave us grace in Jesus Christ. And you wonder, what? on earth does that mean? Well, put your thinking caps on for a few minutes and see if you can follow this because I promise you we're going to get back to Ziffel the pig and and show you how all this relates, all right? This sermon series we're in right now was prompted by Leslie and I when we recently visited Israel and we spent a month there in, in the month of March. When we were in Jerusalem, as, you know, we were based in Jerusalem, we had a, a small apartment there and we were renting and any day we were in Jerusalem, not headed anywhere, we would walk to the old city many times, three or four times a day. It was just a 30-minute walk. And invariably, we end up down at the Western Wall. That photo on the screens is actually a photo that I took that Crystal worked, worked with it so that we could use it for our screens here and doing the sermon series. You'd go down to the Western Wall, and we'd go pray at the Western Wall. And men are on one side, women are on the other side. And each time I'd go there, I'd put my hands on those stones, they were carved by the workers of King Solomon some 3,000 years ago. And I'd put my hand there and pray. 
Now, if you know anything about the land of Israel, in particular about Jerusalem, you know that about 60 to 70 feet up at the top of the wall and a few feet over from there is where they built the temple 3,000 years ago. And it's where the Holy of Holies used to be. When I say the Holy of Holies, I mean the place where God's visible, tangible presence used to be there. They have, we have descriptions in Scripture of where, where the, the, cloud, uh, the visible cloud presence of God would come out of heaven and would go down into the Holy of Holies inside the temple. Think of it this way. It was an, a rectangular building. They had an audience, generally speaking. There's lots of variations on this, but for the most part. Audience out there, God's presence on this end of the temple. And in between the audience and God's presence was a thick veil, a curtain, four inches thick, hand embroidered, so heavy that it took 300 priests to lift it up and put it in place. Once they had it in place, then this cloud came out of heaven and God's presence lived right there. And you, no one was allowed to go into that presence, the one, if you will, behind, behind me where I'm, from that perspective. No one was allowed to go in there except the high priest once a year could go and experience the full, tangible, visible presence of God, and he would go in there and ask for forgiveness. That's what the Old Testament pattern is all about, the stories in the Old Testament. But we know this happened, that in Matthew 27, on the day, at the very moment that Jesus died, the curtain that is between us and God was destroyed. It says in Matthew 27 that the curtain was torn in two. And suddenly God's presence was accessible for all people. No longer was God's presence confined to, from my perspective at the bottom of the wall, 60 feet up and a few feet over from there. Now suddenly God's presence was open to all people. It was God's gift to us. It was nothing we did to get it. It was a gracious gift that came our way. And if it's God's gracious gift, there's nothing you can do to earn it. As a matter of fact, if you've got to do something to earn a gift, it's not really a gift, is it? If you've got to do something to get a gift, then really what it is is wages. You've done something and you're being paid. You know, I've got to be good to get grace. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. It's either grace or it's not grace. Scripture tells us that God's mercy gave us Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. Now, theologians have debated this for centuries. What does this mean? And I want to see if I can give you, well, three terms today that are um, theological in nature, but I've tried to make them really so they're really understandable. Because to see what, when we say grace, what does it mean? Because there are different types of grace. For example, there's common grace. Common grace is the grace that comes to all people regardless of each individual's personal acknowledgement of God. They may say there is no God. They may say I'm in a relationship with God. They may say I walk with Christ. They may say I, I follow some other faith altogether. But these, this, there is common grace that is given by virtue of the fact that God creates the heavens and the earth. And here in central Illinois, we see this every day. I mean, right now, we're in the season where little shoots are poking up throughout the ground, you know, in these lovely lines that the farmers have put out. But while the farmers may put that seed in the ground and may put all the right fertilizer and everything, what is it that causes that to poke through? Simply God's grace. God's common grace is available to all people. As a matter of fact, Jesus put it this way, that God makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. There's a care, a sustaining care of all of creation by the Creator that is meant to be for the benefit of all humanity. That's called common grace. But then there's another type of grace that is given to people as well. Theologians call this special grace. It's the grace by which God redeems 
individuals, and if you will, peoples as a whole. Unlike common grace, special grace is received by those who choose to have faith in Christ Jesus. And that special grace is provenient. Now there's a word, isn't it? Provenient special grace is that this idea. We come to Christ not because of anything we've done, but because God initiated. It was there previously. That grace was available to us previously to before we even knew that we needed it. Paul The apostle says, and this is in the book of Romans, that God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't like, well, we cleaned up our act and then Jesus died. And then God's presence was opened and available to us all. No, it's in the middle of our sin, in the middle of us, frankly, we weren't even born. We we had no knowledge of the need of Jesus Christ prior to Jesus actually dying on our behalf. The veil in the temple was torn in two, By God's grace in Jesus Christ and God's presence, catch me in this, God's presence is available to you and to me and to all of humanity because of his grace. Not anything you did to get it. Now, that understanding is is a New Testament understanding in many ways. It's a little bit different than the Old Testament. Let me see if I can show you how that is. If you look in Psalm 24, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Psalm 24 says this. This is prior to Jesus coming, prior to the veil being torn in two. We read this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Think about this. That first statement is in many ways an understanding of common grace. The earth is God's. You get to enjoy it. You can go to the ocean. You can go to the rivers. You can, what, what, it all belongs to God, but by virtue of his common grace that's given to all people, regardless of their affiliation with him, you get to experience the seas and the waters and everything that we live in. But then in the Old Testament, there was a way in which people could then get from just common grace to special grace, but it was pretty complicated. He's, the psalmist asks a rhetorical question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who gets to be in God's presence? If there's a holy place, who gets to be there? And then the answer is threefold. Clean hands, a pure heart, and the one who doesn't trust in an idol or swear by false gods. What on earth does that mean? Well, again, if I could, to take you back to some of the things we experienced in Israel, and I promise you I'm not going to do this every week, but it's still kind of real fresh in my mind right now. As I mentioned, every day that we were in Jerusalem, we would walk from where we were living over to the old city. And I'm telling you this, if you go to Israel, you're going to walk up a lot of hills. As a matter of fact, from the north, south, east, or west to go to the old city, you have a large city, metropolitan city called Jerusalem. And in the very middle of that is the old city of Jerusalem, one mile square. If you want to get inside that old city, 3,000 years old, you've got to walk up a hill. This hill right here is on the western side of the old city. As a matter of fact, if you're going to drive your car up there, and there are streets that go up into the old city, it more or less, you've got to stop at the bottom of the hill, put it in first gear, and up you go. It's a steep, steep hill. And the psalmist said, who gets to go up into that holy hill? Well, not only that hill of the old city, but as a matter of fact, there was an, inside the old city is another hill where the temple used to be. In biblical days, there were constraints who could get up there and eventually get into that holy of holies up the little higher part. The psalmist said you, have to, you had to have clean hands, a pure heart, and a soul that is in right alignment with God. 
these days due to the strife between the Jews and the Muslims uh, getting from the main area of the old city up into the temple area. They've actually built a wooden and steel um, ramp that goes up over the western wall. It's really quite ugly if you think about it. There's this glorious old wall and old area, and then you got that modern thing that looks kind of out of place. You've got to walk again up higher, 60 feet or so incline, to get up to the top of the Temple Mount. Now, I can only speak for myself. Clean hands, pure heart, right soul alignment. I know how to get clean hands. Yesterday, Les and I were working in the garden, pulling weeds and everything. Yeah, we were wearing gloves, but there are some things that you just, you, you got to get the gloves off and get down in the dirt. You know what I mean? And so I came in the house and I got really ugly looking hands and I'm going, how am I going to get this clean? I got, I got to preach in three hours. You know, well, you get water and you get a nail brush and off you go and you get up with clean hands. I can get clean hands. That's, that's fairly easy to do, all things considered. But the pure heart business... I don't know about that. I'm a little bit concerned that if I have to have a pure heart to get in front of God, I know there are moments where my heart isn't pure. My soul in right alignment with God at all times, well, it's there most of the time. It is my profession after all. But I've had conversations with people in the church or outside the church, and I gotta tell you, in the middle of the conversation, my soul is not in right alignment with God. If I have to have a pure heart in order to experience God's presence, then I got a problem because I know I'll mess up. That's why I'm so glad that in the New Testament understanding, that veil opens up, the presence of God is made available to all, and the gracious gift of Jesus Christ ushers God's presence into our lives regardless of the moment-by-moment condition of the purity of my heart. I'm glad that God's grace covers me at all times. I'll explain it this way. I want you to see a photo of a new friend of mine. His name is Adam Bodenstein. Adam's an American, carries an American passport and an Israeli passport. Here's what happened. Born and raised in California in a Jewish family, at age 15 began to have some interests in the things of his um, family's heritage. So his folks said, well, we'll send you to Israel for a summer. And so for a few summers, he went to Israel and participated in events in Israel as a young teenager. And uh, by the time he was in his, in his early 20s, he decided that he wanted to actually immigrate to Israel. When you immigrate to Israel, the first thing the Israeli government does is they say, we're going to teach you to speak Hebrew. So he spent six months in intensive Hebrew language studies. And then right after that, uh, he is now speaking Hebrew as an Israeli immigrant. He was responsible, like everybody else in the early 20s, to spend two years in the Israeli Defense Forces. And he met a young lady. They got married. They have three children. They settled in the north, one of the northern cities of Israel, a city called Sfat. Adam was our tour guide when we were in the northern part of the nation. He's fully engaged in his faith. You can see it. He's got a long Jewish beard. He actually has the the curls that you see some people wear. He's got them come down. And you can see him wearing a yarmulke. That photo was taken when we were inside his home synagogue, a, a room that would be half the size of this that's 400 years old. Jews have been worshiping in that room for some 400 years. And I, I asked him about his yarmulke. And I expected, frankly, a pretty um, complicated answer. 
I mean, there's got to be a complicated reason why Jewish men wear those yarmulkes all the time. As a matter of fact, walking in that room, uh, the, the, he said, Wayne, you're going to have to wear a yarmulke while you're here in the synagogue because that's our practice. And so I was unaware of this, but Leslie snapped a little photo of me wearing a yarmulke. And uh, so we're, we're in there, and he, I, Adam, what's with the Jewish men wearing yarmulkes? And you know what? It's a fairly simple answer. Surprisingly simple answer. He said, well, we wear them to be reminded that we are under someone's care and that there is someone above us and that God is over us. I bought one. As a matter of fact, I bought quite a few. I've given them to some friends and um, we brought a little tiny one back for John's new little baby boy. He's, he's cool. It's like it's about this big. It's really cool. And um, I asked him, is it offensive for Gentiles? I'm a Gentile. You, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Is it offensive for us to wear them? He said, absolutely not. It means the same thing to you. I mean, it can mean the same thing to you that it means to us. That I'm under God's care and that he's covering me. That the presence of God is available to me because of the grace of Jesus that's found. Grace of God because of what Jesus did on Calvary. And this is a reminder. I've been wearing it here in the office quite a bit this past week. And there's something fascinating that's occurred as I've been wearing it. First of all, I've come up that it's a brilliant idea to wear this, given this. <laughs> I'm going to wear it outside this year. <laughs> Which I want to point out, I didn't have any of this till I started messing around with you guys. So there you go pulling my hair out or something or other, okay? And I have to tell you that all week as I've been wearing this, whenever I've had it on, I've been aware that it's there. You know, you put a baseball cap on, you kind of lose sight of the fact that it's there. After a while, it just feels, feels normal. And, it, you know, you can feel that band there if you think about it. But I think because this slips off easily, if you move your head too quickly, there's a bit of weight to this that I hadn't anticipated experiencing. I actually, it feels different than wearing a baseball cap right now, as I have it on my head right now. I feel that weight. I've called it a grace weight. I am reminded of the grace of God that covers me and the presence of God that is accessible to me at all times. Actually, you know, last week we gave out every those communion cups. And I, I, as I've worn this this past week, I thought, man, I wish we'd bought a bunch of these and let all the men, because it's a male thing, pardon me, ladies, but make all the men wear one as they were left here today. I even thought, man, is there a way in which we could cre- have them created in, in worship? And, but it just was, became, then it became a fifth grade paper project, the origami and whatever. So I just, no, don't worry about that. But this... I'm reminded, like an umbrella, covering me. God's grace covers me. I can get my hands clean, but the pure heart stuff, I got a problem there. But God's grace covers that because of the work of Jesus Christ. God, who is rich in mercy, while we were sinners, had Christ die for us. Which takes me all the way back to Ziphil the pig. What does Ziphil have to do with this or with Ephesians 2? 
You know, the home-ruining, family-ruining adolescent pig. Apparently, as I've done some research on this this past week, this business of these little pot-bellied pigs growing up to, to be too large and creating problems is a common problem. There's a fellow in West Virginia, a guy by the name of Dale Riffle, who, um, Dale Rifle, pardon me, Dale Rifle, who, um, he got a little pig. And that pig, as it grew larger to some 200 pounds, developed a taste for carpets, wallpaper, and drywall. That's not the kind of animal you want in your house. And so people were saying, we need to get rid of this animal. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sell my home in suburbia. And, I'm, and he went out and he bought five acres out in the woods of West Virginia and set up a place where his pig, Rufus, <laughs> it's a funny name for a pig, isn't it? But anyways, Rufus could wallow around in mud and everything and have a wonderful time out there on a five-acre farm. Apparently, other people heard about Dale Rifle's um, response to this, and slowly he began collecting other pigs of families like the Rices who wanted to get rid of their little pig. And so over a period of years, his farm grew to where now he's got 180 pigs in what I guess you could call hog heaven. (laughs) Because here's what it's like. The pigs snooze on beds of pine shavings. They wallow in mud puddles. They soak in plastic swimming pools. When they're inside, there's piped in classical music. Please. And they never have to worry about becoming bacon or pork chops. Well, the Rices, Stella Rice and her family, heard about Dale Rifle's farm. And she said, we begged him to take Ziffel. They finally had came to an agreement, and this is what happened. She said, we pulled up in our van. My husband rolled out the wooden staircase. Please. He rolled out the wooden staircase he had built to get Ziffel in and out of the car. It was raining. So I was standing over Ziffel with my umbrella, shaking a bag of Doritos in front of his snout. When we finally got him to the end of the ramp, he wouldn't step into the mud and the wet grass. So I had to lay down a little carpet for him. The guys at the sanctuary just stood by, shaking their heads, thinking we were nuts. There's a thought that comes to mind about these pigs as it relates to Ephesians 2. What did those pigs ever do to deserve hog heaven? Were they sweet pigs? Were they extra nice pigs? Did they contribute more than their fair share to society? Did they treat their children well? Did they give extra large amounts to charity? Perhaps they smiled nicely when people spoke to them and so they got to be on this end of the spectrum between being dirty, rotten scoundrels. Were they like that? No. As a matter of fact, none of that is the case. Most of the pigs at Rifle's Farm are there because why? They are unlovely, they are too aggressive, and they don't behave well. Yet they ended up in hog heaven. Why? Simply because of the gracious kindness extended to them by Dale Rifle and his crew. That's what it's like for those of us who walk with God today. In Jesus Christ, it's the same for those of us who experience his presence and that opening of the curtain that's made available to us and we get to say, I can be in the presence of God. What allows us, if you will, in the long run, to say we get to go to heaven. Not because we've done anything right, 
but because God in grace covers us. That's a cool weight to have. As a matter of fact, I want you to read this out loud with me because I think it puts a capstone on everything we've said today. Read this with me. An infinite, perfectly holy, majestic, awesome God is passionately in love with insignificant, sinful, sometimes openly rebellious, and frequently indifferent people. That's good news. That's something to wear around all week long. Would you pray with me, please? Father, for this day we give you thanks. For time in this room we give you thanks. Lord, we thank you for the music we've heard today and how impacting it's been and how we have been reminded that we need you every hour. And Lord, the truth of the matter is we do need you. We can get clean hands, God. But we do pray, God, we get more than clean hands. We would have a pure heart that represents your grace. Lord God, for each person in this room today, I pray that you would speak to them. If they are far from you, call them to you. Enable them to simply say, like, acknowledge your grace. I need that grace. I need it to be a, like a covering over me. For the rest of us, Lord, who live in that, may we give you great thanks. May we, Lord, all of us, leave from this place walking with you, not because of what we have done, but because of your gracious act in Jesus Christ. Your presence can go with us from this room into all the events and activities of this week. May that occur, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.